Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Laura. It's good to be on. Crypto Twitter was pretty excited last week to see your Bloomberg Intelligence Crypto Outlook report on Bitcoin, which was titled The Bitcoin Maturation Leap. Why don't you explain, first of all, what the Bloomberg Crypto Outlook is, when it got started, and why Bloomberg felt that it should start a crypto outlook? Um, well, I guess it was me who started it. I was kind of intrigued by the space. And as you mentioned, I'm a commodity strategist. So I really started it 2018. Um, it was probably earlier in the year. I felt this space really needed to be covered. And the main reason why is the interest and the just it's, you know, the question, is it evolutionary or revolutionary? And I've come around to that Bitcoin is revolutionary. And um, what I found is Bloomberg is mostly institutional, mostly professional. And if, if anything, it's a good sign that people are really interested. So I started writing about it and got a lot of interest. And so I keep doing it. And partly because I'm interested in, in it. And um, I find that we've had a decent run at, you know, kind of predicting where the market's going to go. And that's what I do as a strategist. I don't really care too much. I'm completely objective about um, different current, you know, different markets. My goal is to say this is where it's going and why. And I'm actually, after we're done speaking, I'll be working on my outlook for May, which will be published the first uh, first week of May. And in your most recent crypto outlook, what were your top line takeaways? That this crisis, you know, Bitcoin born in the previous crisis, 2008, 2009, this crisis should define its maturation. And it's doing a really good job of that. Now, initially, it did have a, a, a correction in terms of price. Again, my outlook is really just where it's going in terms of the price of cryptos, most notably Bitcoin. But now, as we speak on Friday, May 1st, Bitcoin's up 26% on the year, and S&P 500's down 9%. So Bitcoin, to me, is trading more and more like gold, becoming a digital version of gold. Um, and that is what this year should define, because some of us have been really kind of expecting something like this, i.e. A, a, a decent setback, I should say, shakeout in the stock market, um, and continuation of some really unfavorable trends, which is, you know, debt to GDP increasing, more Fed easing, um, but a potential recession, which really was triggered by, um, I guess it had a major catalyst with the coronavirus. And the problem is a lot of these indications were there well before the virus kicked in. 
And Bitcoin is just right in the right place to be one of the top assets to benefit from, I guess you could say, from the, the ebbing tide of the global economy. And so was your feeling that Bitcoin was reaching this point even before the pandemic, but that the pandemic is just accelerating it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what's the it's obviously not so much the pandemic. It's the reaction to the pandemic, the complete shutdown. So the number one thing is unprecedented global central bank um, liquidity providing. People might call it money printing. So, for instance, the Fed, Fed's purchasing bonds, interest rates are zero. Um, and they're buying assets with basically creating money. That is very bullish for gold. And I view Bitcoin in the same bucket as gold. It's essentially a collectible. It's a digital form of gold. I don't really view it as a form of payment because it's not really good for that, partly because supply is, is, is linearly trending down. The supply is just going away. Um, and it's being adopted. So I, view what's happening now globally is the key test for Bitcoin. This year, I think we'll look back on is the, the year that defined Bitcoin becoming a mature asset. And right now it's doing quite well. I.e. One thing to remember about Bitcoin is risk adjusted. It's trading very well, even though it had that big correction. It trades to me just like gold did in 2008. Remember when the market initially collapsed? I mean, all markets, except for the bond market. Gold went down about 30%, and that printed, printed at the bottom around 700 and then went straight up to 1900 That's right at the time the Fed really started aggressive quantitative easing. Now, we're doing the exact same thing now. Bitcoin corrected around 40%, and here it's now back up on the year. So I think that's going to continue. And one other thing you mentioned is the trend in Bitcoin futures increasing. It um, a little bit more than doubled year to year of, uh, in Q1 from 2019 to 2020. So what impact would you say that increasing Bitcoin futures trade volume has will, or will have on the price of Bitcoin? So a lot of what I'm focusing on is the maturation and adult supervision coming into the space for Bitcoin. And that's futures are a key part of that. And I don't mean, um, you know, I mean, listed futures, i.e. futures that are listed on a um, CFTC-approved exchange, CME, and are um, part within the U.S. regulatory format, i.e. that is part of the the, the on-ramp to an ETF in, in some case. So right now, as we speak, open interest in the futures contract in CME, which started trading in 2017, is reached an all-time new high. And that's an indication of adoption from an institutional standpoint, and it's an indication of Bitcoin really coming into the, the forefront of the mature space for asset classes. It's a good indication of volatility should continue to decline. And that's a key thing that's happening this year is volatility in Bitcoin's on the way down versus volatility on stock markets on the way up. And that's what I think is transition. Initially, initially Bitcoin was kind of a risk asset. I think it's transitioned to a risk off asset. So things like that. Futures are a good indication of adoption. We see things like addresses used. Uh, adoption. Um, just, I watch like, uh, th well, and then anecdotal, you hear fidelity, backed futures, and uh, the GBTC. I watch the, uh, the total assets on a ma management in that, uh, in the grayscale Bitcoin trust. Anything I can to see adoption. And to me, that's the key thing that matters. When something has limited supply, we know it's never going to have more supply. All that matters is adoption. And futures are a good indication. Open interest is just part of that. And so earlier we talked about how 
um, quantitative easing will probably drive interest in this sort of version of digital gold. Um, but then I was, and you also talked about, you know, the futures being an indication of institutional interest. But I was also wondering then how this trend of, well, <laughs> essentially this record unemployment that we're seeing due to the coronavirus, how that will also impact uh, the, you know, adoption of Bitcoin. Well, the, the, um, the, la the, I guess since the con compression or the reduction of income is a problem, but Bitcoin's global and it, I very view it as a getting into the institutional space. So the number one thing that, that this, that's happening is causing central banks, most notably the Fed to just pump the system with liquidity. So that's supposed to help the stock market. In the short term, it's okay. So basically, they're just massively increasing the supply of physical, as people say in the space, fiat currency, pay, paper money. And Bitcoin is measured in that. Everything like our homes are measured in it, stocks are measured in that. So it, to me, increases the incentive to take that paper money that you should be spending because it doesn't have interest anymore, and there's massive supplies of it, converting that into some form of physical safe assets. Now, initially, people are going to the stock market. I think that's fading. They're going to realize there's no earnings. So that's a problem. Bitcoin and gold, to me, are the highest probability assets that should continue to appreciate. And then there's things like land, real estate, income producing real estate. Depends on, you know, that's all about location. And, of course, there's a bit of a lower tide factor there. But it's that that no interest rates and just the, the, the fact that we're printing. And it, people might call it debasing currency. But in a deflationary environment, the Fed and central banks are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. But you're supposed to take some of that currency they're printing and put it in safe assets, I think, as a prudent investor. And I think institutions are figuring out that in, in the gold bucket, Bitcoin fits. In a moment, we'll discuss on-chain price. Well, sorry. Well, in a moment, we'll discuss price versus on-chain indicators in Bitcoin. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Mike McGlone. I was especially interested in the part of your report that talked about Bitcoin's price versus the on-chain indicators. What do you see happening there? Well, I use a lot of data I can. Every, I look, I, I view as many sources as I can, um, and one of them is coin metrics. And the key thing I get from there is addresses used. I use a 30-day average of addresses used. It just reached the highest since July. I don't look for anything as a high correlation in the past. And July is when Bitcoin averaged around $10. The other... Um, other metric I find that has a high correlation with price or somewhat predictive of price is, transa is transactions, um, transaction, adjusted transactions. And then, of course, hash rate. Hash rates is more of the bigger picture. Now, transactions have lagged a little bit, but you, you, you combine that with what's happening with open interest. And I see pretty strong signs of, of interest and adoption um, from the market. So Bitcoin around 10,000 makes sense with the way just looking in auto scale for the last few years with um, addresses used. Now, addresses used, I like some in a better way because I see Bitcoin transitioning to gold, meaning, yes, it's great for trading, but it's probably better to 
you know, just kind of buy slowly and not spend. And one other event that's on the horizon that everyone's discussing is, of course, the halving. What effect do you think that will have on the price in the short and medium term? Yeah, I, mean, I was hope I was expecting we'd get there, Laura, because it's the classic differentiation. And having obviously matters in the big picture, but from a macro market person standpoint, it's a known known. Everybody knows it's there. Everybody talks about it. In the big picture, it just looks. I just it just the actual process of it happening. People will use that as an excuse as it for going up. But it's you know we've known this forever. But the key factor is if I look at it. From supply standpoint, if you look at supply of Bitcoin on an annual basis, last year it was around 3% the year before it was 4%, the year before it was like 6%. But the next two years, it's going down to 2% and 1% and getting down. So you see where it's going. And that to me is a key thing as, as the bottom line is we know there's going to be no supply unless something happens I can't predict. So the only thing that matters is adoption. So I look at the having as, meh, okay, I get it. But it's part of the macro big picture when I compare it to gold is, over time, gold supply historically has been 2%. And if it goes up, they're going to bring on the old mines and they're bring on more. You can't do that with Bitcoin. So to me, I guess I average, I understand, is every day about 1,800 coins are created a day. And as of a couple of weeks from now, it's going to be 900 a day. So when people talk about the cost of mining, it just doesn't matter. It used to, but going forward, it's not. Because of those 21 million total, almost 90% have already been you know, created. And that's why I look at it as a collectible. The having is just part of that. You know, it's it's just, it's great banter. So we've only been discussing Bitcoin up until this point. And so does all of this come down to Bitcoin? Or how would you expect some of these factors to affect the rest of the crypto market? In particular, some blockchains that have also gotten traction, such as Ethereum. Well, so Bitcoin's about seven times the next uh, most, you know, highest AUM um, crypto Ethereum, which is pretty significant. And I view it as Bitcoin is unique. Um, it's no one else's liability. It trades. Its, its adoption is completely picking up. If you pay, compare its hash rate compared to every other coin, most notably Ethereum, Bitcoin is just off the charts. So it's the one that's just done it's created it's been adopted ethereum the problem is i look at there's 5400 other cryptos okay some that's somewhat subjective there's just too much supply too much ease of entry and too much competition for me to really care and that's where i look at ethereum and then i say okay well there's eos and you know i get it it's just not the one that's gaining the traction and adoption it doesn't have futures maybe it'll get there but I view the rest of the space as kind of a gaggle. Now, it really mattered before, but now in this macro environment, it's Bitcoin. And partly because just look at the adoption. It's the one to that you can trust. It's where you can get the liquidity. And the bottom line thing you learn in trading, and I learned in futures, it's the depth. If you need to buy or sell a large quantity, you're going to get that in Bitcoin. And what about what would you say will happen with the adoption of some of the centralized stable coins, such as Libra, Tether, or some of the central bank digital currencies that are in the works? My bottom line is the outlook when I hear anything about Tether or Libra is it increases, improves my outlook for the appreciation of the price of Bitcoin. And here's the main reason why. The key inflection point in 2019, when Bitcoin was kind of on its way down and 
everybody poo-pooed Tether. I was in Hong Kong two years ago, and you know they just loved cryptos, partly because they need to get away from China, and they just hated Tether. And I remember pointing out, well, look at the AUM. That's all that matters to me. So when the, the New York Attorney General came down in Tether and the market didn't care, that flipped a switch for me. Because to me, if the market doesn't care, I don't care. And to me, what Tether is, Tether is what all the other cryptos want to be, and that's currency. Most of the other cryptos are just speculative digital assets. Tether is obviously tra- um, you know, tethered to the U.S. dollar, the world's you know, stable currency. But it's indicative of what a real currency needs to be, stable, transactable. And then there's a store value, Bitcoin. So I view the appreciation tether is positive and not so good for the other cryptos because they just can't do that. But good for Bitcoin because it's so unique. It's like gold. It's no one else's liability. Look, look at Ethereum. You know, it's someone else's project. In a, in a way. And then the key thing is Libra. Libra is also a wannabe. It's it's potentially, you know, stable, wants to be a digital currency. But it again, it just added to my bullish view on Bitcoin because it it showed to me how unique Bitcoin is. No one else's liability. And it's just something everybody else wants to be. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but just the fact that people want to create it to me says, well, there's already something there that is a digital store value that I can move my money around in the world on a thumb drive and I don't have to worry about versus, you know, hearing all these issues in physical gold lately, there has to be some form of digital store value. It's, it's Bitcoin. And then I look at things like, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about, you know, one of the major people are all going cashless. I mean, the world's going cashless. And so one of my primary ways to do that is in this country, notably is credit cards, but there's someone in between getting two to 3% of that exchange. That just does not make sense when interest rates are zero. So um, I view all the stable coins and potential, you know, digital assets, I should say, um, sovereign um, digital assets, um, like in China and, and even in the U.S. as getting into that space where you'll be able to transact. I know there's privacy things, but you don't have to have that credit card in between and taking your two to 3%, most notably from the merchant. So it sounds like you think that adoption of centralized stable coins or central bank digital currencies will is like a foregone conclusion. It's just a matter of time, unless you think technology is going backwards. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm in my home in Connecticut. I look out to my garage. I have electric car. We got electric panels on my house. I mean, this is just this is just where things are going. And what would you say about something like a decentralized stablecoin such as Dai? Don't know much about it, um, but because uh, it's it doesn't help me um, get a better view of what's going to happen with the price of other cryptos or Bitcoin. But that's more in the space that a lot of your other guests will cover. That's more the business side. But I think those kind of things are just a you know, matter of time. I just don't know much about it because my primary focus as strategist is this where this is where the price is going and why. And um, it doesn't really help give me an indication. And well, so but to go back to that, I mean, if one of the you know, obviously you cover commodities and people have talked about Ether as um, sort of like a digital oil oil used for running the ethereum virtual machine what do you think of that theory yeah um sure that works but there's a lot of competitors oh oh, meaning like other smart contract platforms yeah 
No, I just I can't. You know, I just mentioned EOS, one of them, because I was at Bloomberg. We have uh, we launched the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index, and we work closely with uh, Mike Novogratz, and he was a big fan of EOS. So, but I just see that as um, they're just yeah, Ethereum, yeah, great, helped create a lot of the you know a lot of the um, other coins and things, but it's just not. It's in a macro standpoint from what's happening in the world for with money and things. Bitcoin is obviously gold, and Ethereum is just another one of the 5,000 other cryptos out there. (laughs) And I also wanted to get your opinion of this trend in decentralized finance. Is that an area that you're watching? And if so, where do you expect it will go? Uh, Definitely watching. And a lot of it I get from your program, listening to your guests, Laura. But um, for me, I think it's just a matter of time, most notably with with what's happening in the world. But um, I don't know how that's going to really impact prices so much because if anything decentralized finance needs a stable something for stabilized stable to transact like the dollar average annual volatility in the dollar is what uh, five six percent bitcoin it's eighty percent and a lot of the other cryptos it's over a hundred percent that's just not practical for transactions that's speculative speculation so but my my bottom line is that that helps this the, the trend that way helps me Think if that's successful, that means a digital store value like Bitcoin is going to gain more traction, more adoption, which which is a, a, improves the outlook for the price. <laughs> yeah, and actually, there was a new version of Bitcoin, uh, what they call a trustless bridge, um, that <laughs> like basically you can uh, use your Bitcoin as collateral in DeFi, and so we'll see what happens when. Um, you know, how this works with the digital goals being used in the device space. Um, Well, anyway, it's been so fun having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Well, thanks for having me. I, I, I'm actually, I never um, write my outlooks without listening to your program. And I um, have, since we've been locked up lately, I haven't been listening as much because I don't commute as much, but (laughs) I always use your, I really appreciate the education that you provide in this space. And it really helps me formulate my opinions and my views, which I publish. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I know uh, people have told me they listen on their commute or at the gym and I'm like, Hmm, I wonder what they're doing. (laughs) I wonder when they're listening to, I guess people will have to tweet at me and let me know. All right. Um, well, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone. Time now for this week in crypto. First headline Telegram delays its launch due to regulatory battle. Telegram has postponed the launch of its TON blockchain to April of 2021 and offered to return $1.2 billion to investors after a judge ruled that Telegram could not launch its blockchain or issue Gram tokens until its case with the SEC was resolved. Last fall, the agency charged Telegram, which had a $1.7 billion ICO in early 2018, with holding an unregistered securities offering. Coindesk reports that the company is now offering to return up to 72% of each investor's stake, but has also given its investors the option of lending their investment to Telegram until a year from now. It quotes the letter as saying, as a token of gratitude for your trust in Ton, we are also offering you an alternative option to receive 110% of your original investment by April 30th, 2021, which is 53% higher than the termination amount. 
Read the full Coindesk article for some juicy details, include indicating that the decision to postpone the launch was made at the 11th hour. Next headline, A16Z Crypto's second fund raises $515 million. After its first fund of $300 million, A16Z Crypto has announced a second fund. Partners Chris Dixon and Katie Hahn wrote up a blog post about the areas within crypto that they're excited about, including next generation payments, modern store of value, decentralized finance, new ways for creators to monetize, and Web3. Next headline, Ethereum's not any more centralized than Bitcoin, an analysis of Ethereum's top 10,000 wallets. Adam Cochran, partner at Meta Cartel Ventures, wrote up a 109 tweet tweet storm on his analysis of the top 10,000 holders in Ethereum. Not counting smart contracts such as the wrapped Ether smart contracts, he found that the top 10,000 addresses represented 56.7% of all ETH which he says is basically the same as Bitcoin's top 10,000 holders, who hold 57.4% of the Bitcoin supply. In comparison, 16 XRP addresses own 55% of XRP, 300 Litecoin addresses own 54% of LTC, and 1,031 addresses own 51% of Tron's TRX. He writes, this means when it comes to equity of distribution, Ethereum and Bitcoin are in a league of their own. No other coin comes with an order of magnitude of their distribution. He also makes an estimate of what the yield would be under a proof-of-stake system in Ethereum, finding that early adopters might obtain something like 12-20% to yield. I urge you to read the whole thread, which is actually much longer and contains many more nuggets of information than what I was able to to give you here. And there is also a version available on Substack and on Medium. Although, oddly, I personally found the tweet storm to be the most readable. Next headline, UMA's initial Uniswap offering, permissionless price discovery or manipulative as hell. The token sale for UMA protocol on Uniswap caused a bit of controversy. Delphi Digital did a great analysis titled, UMA is listing on Uniswap in four hours. We can already tell you what will happen. I'm just going to urge you guys to read this because I actually cannot do justice to this post here. But long story short, because UMA was listing only 2% of its tokens and because of Uniswap's constant products model, the writer, analyst Jan Lieberman, was able to predict that the UMA token price could not go below its starting point. He wrote, quote, the 2 million starting in the pool establishes the floor price and the constant product aspect of Uniswap ensures that even if prices increase considerably, a massive sell-off would still end with prices never going below that starting point. On crypto Twitter, the way this played out did not garner accolades. As Rick Burton, who's active in DeFi, said, quote, the fully diluted valuation ripped through $120 million plus for a promising team with a protocol that is still in development. Or as Adam Cochran of Metacartel Ventures put it, manipulative as hell. Suju of Three Arrows called it arguably scammier than actual ICOs. Playing defense was co-founder Hart Lambert of UMA who tweeted, 
My view, initial price discovery is really hard. This wasn't a perfect attempt, and in hindsight, Rick Burton is right. We should have upped the communication. But this was a genuine attempt at permissionless price discovery. Other options aren't great. Chris Berniski of Placeholder, who has invested in UMA, also tweeted, UMA Protocol has decided to publicly release UMA starting at the same network valuation that seed investors paid. And he followed up with another tweet saying, the options would have been to cater to centralized exchanges or seek further illiquid and bespoke private market valuations. UMA opted for a novel, low-cost, and permissionless price discovery process. UMA co-founder Allison Liu solicited community feedback and said, quote, I felt that it made more logical sense to have this convo after the token had a price and feel awful that it came off as anything else. Next headline. Hedgic typo creates ruckus. If after the BZX and DeForce attacks, you didn't get the memo that the security in DeFi is questionable, a kerfuffle last weekend about on-chain options protocol Hedgic is a good reminder. On Saturday, April 25th, Hedgic tweeted an alert saying, quote, a typo has been found in the code. Because of that, liquidity and expired options contracts can't be unlocked for new options. Please exercise all of your action active options contracts now. Everyone will be 100% refunded with the amount of premium that you paid for options. This prompted a number of responses similar to this one by Hudson Jameson of the Ethereum Foundation who tweeted, It's a bug, not a typo. You're downplaying the severity of the bug. In a series of tweets, Trail of Bits CEO Dan Guido tweeted, in three days earlier this month, we identified 10 critical flaws in Hedgic options that could harm users. We noted a lack of tests, a lack of documentation, and that the time afforded to review their code was insufficient. Bottom line, we told them to hold off deploying. Maria Paula Fernandez summed it up as, quote, To those late to the party, a summary we can all get. Trail of Bits basically told Hedgic to not go out. But because they were too wasted and wearing a tube top and Hedgic went out, had a wardrobe malfunction and ruined everything and said Trail of Bits didn't mention that tube tops and drinks don't mix. Uh, next headline, a number of DeFi users still small but growing exponentially. Richard Chen, partner at One Confirmation, wrote up a great post arguing that total value locked is not the best metric by which to judge DeFi popularity. Because that figure can be driven by fluctuations in the price of ETH, and also because DeFi is dominated by whales. So he looked at total number of users for DeFi across a number of projects, including Kyber, which had more than 62,000 unique trader addresses, Uniswap, which has almost 52,000 unique liquidity provider and trader addresses, Compound, which had nearly 28,000 unique lender and provider addresses, as well as other big DeFi projects. He finds that the total number of unique addresses across all projects is a bit over 150,000 users and says, quote, at the current growth rate of 0.56% daily, we'd expect to see 1 million DeFi users by March 2021 and 10 million by May 2022. We shall see. All right, fun bits. Crypto Twitter shadow banned? So this is not actually fun necessarily, but it seemed worth mentioning. And yet this is also random enough that it didn't really go in the regular headlines. So I'm going to put it here. 
A number of crypto Twitter people, such as Anthony Sassano, Naraj Agrawal, Linda Shea, Nick Carter, Mike Dudas, and Jeff Garzik, believe that their notifications and Twitter impressions have been down over the last few days. So actually, I don't really tweet all that much, but I think perhaps that maybe this is also happening to me too. It's unclear why, but if you like following crypto people on Twitter, maybe set up a dedicated stream for them now. All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Mike and Bluebring Intelligence, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. All crypto, no hype, some merch. Shop Unchained t-shirts, hats, mugs, and stickers at shop.unchainedpodcast.com. Again, that's shop.unchainedpodcast.com. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.